Good morning. The reading today is from 1 Samuel, verse 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people of Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go from there farther and come to the Oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Jilbeth, a Lehom, where there is a garrison of Philistines, and there is soon to come to the city you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesizing, then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and turn into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hands do to find you for God to be with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Jilby, behold, a group of prophets met them, and the Spirit of God raised, rushed upon them and he prophesied among them. And when all he knew previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, and who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? When he said he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when he saw they were not to be found, we went to, so to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, and from the hand of the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and distresses, and you said to him, Set a king over us, therefore... Present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. 
Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it upon the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Jilbe, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched, but some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. All right. Thanks, Pat. Um, if you have your Bible open, if you just stay there for a minute, we're going to be kind of jumping back and forth between chapter 9 and chapter 10. We just read chapter 10 just for sake of time. But we'll be covering both passages today. Um, a couple weeks ago, Stephanie and myself and Paul, uh, we had a really busy day. Had Just were running around doing a number of different things. But I was getting a new cell phone, and so I wanted to stop at Sam's Club to get a new case for the cell phone. Um, so on our way home, we stopped at Sam's Club, and all of us are really tired, but we go in, and I don't know if you've ever been to the Sam's Club in Niagara Falls, but as you walk in the door of, of that Sam's Club, on the left-hand side, there's these kiosks with all these uh, cell phones, and almost any time that you come in there, there's somebody selling something there, whether it's DirecTV or home security systems or whatever, you name it, they're selling something. So usually when I go into Sam's Club, if that's on the left, I kind of walk over to the right and try to avoid these people. And occasionally they get me, and I'll be like, oh, I'm all set, thank you, and I'll just keep walking. Sometimes they'll follow me through the aisle, and I'm like, I'm all set, thank you. This time it was different. This time they got me. Uh, I was tired, so my defenses were down, and... Like I said, I was looking for a cell phone case, and the cell phone cases happened to be right behind the kiosk where this lady was selling stuff. And so we all went over there, and the lady came up to Stephanie and said, uh, do you pay utility bills? And she's like, said something like, oh, well, he does here, and then she walked away. <laughs> and so then I'm there, and I'm like, at first I'm like, oh, I'm all set, thank you. But the thing was, the cell phone cases were there, and there were hundreds of cell phone cases, and people had kind of rifled through them, so they weren't in the proper places. So I'm looking through the cases, trying to find out which case is for my phone, and the whole time, she just keeps hammering me. Uh, do you know you could get a $70 gift card if you can sign up today? Do you know you could save some money on your energy costs? And even though I'm resisting, she's still asking questions, and she's still hammering me about this. What's your, what's your zip code? I'm like, okay, 14120. What's your address? Okay, this is my address. 
What's your social security number? I really don't feel comfortable giving that out. Oh, but we have to. We have to have it in order to give you this rate and you can get this good discount. I was like, okay. I gave her the social security number. And then she brings up on uh, the screen, she's like, all right, this is what you're paying for your energy costs and this is what you could be paying if you sign up. And you can cancel at any time. And now in, in the back of my mind, there's warning bells going off. Like that something can't be right. They're just not giving out $70 gift cards for nothing. But she's so persistent, finally I'm like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And then, of course, as soon as I said I would do it, it was, it's not a $70 gift card. Since you only signed up one utility, it's a $45 gift card. And you can't get it today. You have to fill out this survey, and you have to make sure you sign up for three months. And then after three months, we'll send you this $45 gift card. And so then I met Stephanie again, and I'm carrying this paperwork, and I'm like, I... I, I signed up for something. I don't really know what this is. I signed up for something. <laughs> so then I go home, and of course, and it turned out it was some kind of scam. I had to cancel it. But it's this lady was so persistent that finally I just gave in and thought, well, I guess I could cancel later if I need to, even though those warning bells were going off. And I think that's kind of what's happening in this passage. The people of Israel have been persistent in calling out for a king. And last week we looked, and the previous weeks, we looked at how it wasn't the fact that they were asking for a king that was the problem. The fact was that kind of the motivation why they wanted a king. They wanted a king because they wanted someone to fight for them, and they wanted to be like the other nations. So it wasn't necessarily the asking for a king. It was why they were asking for that king and we know that God's uh, plan was to eventually provide them with a king, but it was a different kind of king than they were asking for. But we get to this passage, and uh, on the surface, the passage can be really confusing. As I'm reading this passage and studying it this week, I was very confused about it in some ways because on the one hand, we see God's providential hand working throughout these two chapters. We see that through ordinary events, through the fact that Saul's father loses some uh, donkeys. It, he's led to uh, this prophet of God, which is described in chapter 9, which we didn't read. Uh, but he's led to the prophet of God, and through that, uh, Saul becomes the king, and he's anointed as king. And we see God's hand all throughout these two chapters, and we see that this choice of a king, it's not just Samuel's choice, it's also God's choice. We see it in chapter 10, verse 1, where it says again, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has, lot, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. We also see that Saul had a change of heart. That doesn't mean that he was saved per se, but it says in the text in verse 9 of chapter 10 that he had a change of heart, he had a change of mind. We see in the text that he's prophesying on behalf of God. And so we see all these evidences that God is working in Saul's life and that God has appointed him as king. But what is confusing is the fact that we know that Saul's kingship is going to be an epic failure. We know that Saul is going to do some terrible things and he's going to lead the people of Israel astray. And so the question is, if God chose Saul as his leader... If he was part of this anointing, then, then why did he fail? Why did he do these terrible things? And why would God choose him 
if he knew that he was going to fail like this. And, and you wonder, does God make, did God make a mistake here? So how do we resolve this seeming contradiction? Well, I, I think there's hints in this text that while God chooses Saul, this, is, this king is not ultimately the king that God desires. It's not ultimately the one, the, the one that he wants to be king. David Firth, a scholar, puts it this way. There's a profound tension lying at the heart of this passage. A tension that's only partly resolved between what Yahweh agrees to do and what Yahweh desires to do. So God agrees to appoint this type of king for the people of Israel, but it's not necessarily the type of king that he would desire to rule over the nation of Israel. Stephanie and I went on our honeymoon to uh, St. John in the Virgin Islands, a tropical island. And uh, before we went on our honeymoon, uh, I remember Stephanie kept uh, mentioning how she wanted to have a fresh coconut. And at one point, I wanted to have a fresh coconut as well, but I tried a fresh coconut, and it wasn't very good at all. <laughs> so I warned her. I said, I don't, I don't re really think you're going to like it. It's not very good. It's not, I mean, you see... Pictures of people, you know, sipping out of a coconut. You think that'd be a real cool thing to do, but I didn't like it at all. Maybe some of you would, but I didn't like it. And I warned her, I said, I don't think you're going to like this. But she's like, ah, I'd just like to try one. So we get there, and there's this guy that has a whole bucket of coconuts. And uh, basically what he would do is he'd take a machete and just chop off the top, put a straw in it, and you're on your way. And uh, she sees that, and she's like, well, I said something like, well, I... I don't need to have it. I, you know, I probably won't like it. It was like $7. I'm like, hey, this is our honeymoon. When are you ever going to get a fresh coconut like that? You got to try it. And of course she tried it and she didn't like it either. But it's something that you, you just have to try. I mean, it seems like a good thing. And I thought it was a good thing originally. But I tried it, didn't really like it. And I think that's kind of what happens here. In the passage that we read last week, we saw that God warns the people of Israel he warns them, you're not going to like to have a king. You're not going to like to have a king like you've described. You're, this king is going to take stuff from you. He's going to conscript your sons. He is going to take a tithe of all that you make. You're not going to like having a king. And yet the people of Israel still demand, we want a king like the other nations. We want someone who's going to go out and fight for us. And finally God gives in. He's like, okay, if you want a king like that, I'm going to give you a king like that. And so he chooses a king, not necessarily the king that he wants, but a king that the nations want. And we'll, just, we'll talk a little bit more in, in a second about why he does that. But we see the hints in the text that this king, Saul, is not God's ultimate intention for what kingship was going to be. We see it, first of all, by the fact that in chapter 9, verse 16, and chapter 10, verse 1, when it talks about Samuel anointing Saul... It doesn't use the word king. And that's kind of surprising since the word king is used in previous passages. Uh, the only time that it's used in these two chapters is it's used at the end when the people demand a king. So it, the word that's used in the ESV, it's, just, uh, it's translated as prince. It could also mean something like ruler or something along those lines. But it's interesting that when God talks about, and Samuel talks about anointing Saul, he doesn't refer to, that, to him as uh, anointing him as a king. 
And most likely, we can't be sure of the meaning of this, but I, I think the most likely reason for this is that it's a hint that this isn't the ultimate king that God is looking for. Yes, he's anointed. Yes, he's someone that he's going to put forward as a ruler of the people, but he's not the king that God ultimately longs to put over the people of Israel. So what's the difference between the king that God wanted and the king that the people of Israel wanted? Now, the people of Israel, again, they wanted to be like the other nations, and they wanted a king who would go out and fight their battles for them. In other words, they were trying to replace God as being their divine warrior, the one who fought for them. Now, in God's idea of kingship, it was a little bit different. In God's idea of kingship, he would still be the one who fought for his people. He would still be the one who rescued his people, and the king would be his representative on the earth. And the king would kind of be a model, so to speak, that would point people to the true God, that would lead the nation of Israel in the true worship of God and in truly trusting the Lord for victory. And so, again, the difference is, in Israel's conception, the divine warrior God was replaced, but in God's mind, yes, there's a king, yes, there's a representative, but he's still the one who empowers his people. He's the one that they can rely on and trust in. So if Israel wanted a king, what kind of a king would they want? If they wanted someone who, go, who could go out and fight for him, what, what kind of king would they want? That king is described in chapter 9, verses 1 to 2. It says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zahor, the son of Bechareth, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. So, the text tells us there's three things that are attractive about, Paul, about Saul. First, he came from a wealthy family. Second, he was very handsome. Third, he was very tall and very strong. It says from the shoulders up, he was taller than anybody else, which most likely means that everybody else kind of came to his shoulders. He towered above everybody else by that much. And so if you were looking for a warrior, someone who would go out and fight for you, Saul is the person you'd be looking for. Someone who is handsome, someone who is strong, someone who is tall. He's a man's man. He's a warrior. He's the person that you would want to go out and fight for you. But there's evidence in the text that spiritually he's not so strong. And as we go out throughout the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to see that played out as he makes some really poor choices and turns from the Lord. But we see that even in this chapter. First of all, we see that this passage starts with him looking for his father's donkeys. Now, we can't say for sure, and maybe this is reading too much in the text, but it's ironic that he's supposed to be anointed as the shepherd of Israel, the king of Israel, and yet he's having trouble hanging on to three uh, donkeys. We see also in the text that he goes and they, they look for these donkeys, and as they look for the donkeys, uh, he comes to a place where we better just return. Our father uh, is going to be worried about us. And he says that to his servant. And his servant is like, well, I, I've heard of this man of God who's in this city. If we just go to this man of God, he'll tell us what to do. He'll tell us how to find these uh, donkeys. And again, he's like, well, we don't have anything to pay this seer, this prophet of God. And 
the servant comes up with some changes and says, we can, we can give him this. And so we see even in this, he's not resourceful. He's not trusting after God to find uh, these donkeys. We see in verse 10 of chapter 10 that the Spirit of God came upon Saul and he prophesied. And those who knew him were shocked that he was prophesying. They probably didn't fit along with his character that he's prophesying on behalf of God. Then we see in chapter 10 that he, all the people of Israel are brought to Mizpah and, and everybody travels there and then the king is going to be anointed and they cast lots to determine who's going to become the king. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, the lot falls on Saul, but Saul is AWOL. He's nowhere to be found. And then they look and they find him among the baggage of People had traveled on a long journey to get there, and he's hiding in the baggage. Apparently, he, was, he didn't trust God's plan for his life, didn't trust God to make him the leader that he needed to be. And, and it's kind of comical as they find him hiding among the baggage, and then they bring him out, and they say, he's taller than everybody else up to the, from the shoulders upward. I mean, this giant of a man is hiding in the midst of the baggage. Samuel says to the people in chapter 10, verse 24, Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among the people. And so we see that if God was going to give Israel a warrior, a king that they wanted, it was going to be Saul. Because Saul was a man's man. He was a warrior. He was tall. He was handsome. It seemed like he had it all together. But spiritually, he was bankrupt in the next couple chapters are going to spell that out, uh, what happens with him. Now, then the question, the million-dollar question is, why did God allow this to happen? Why would God give in to the people and give them what they wanted? Why would he give them such a king? I think that God gave them what they wanted to show them what they needed. God gave them what they wanted to show them what they needed. The gave them this kind of a king to show them that this kind of a king wouldn't be enough. And so that they would long for another king and ultimately they'd long for King Jesus. Contrast this king, King Saul, with the king that God had in mind, the human king God had in mind, King David. Now, remember the scene here of Saul. He's anointed as king and yet he's hiding among the baggage, terrified. Consider the character of David, man after God's own heart. David was a shepherd boy. He wasn't tall like Saul was. He was a little shepherd boy. Nobody thought that he was kingship material. And so one day he's headed to see his brothers. His brothers are the true warriors, the true strong men. And so he's bringing food to his brothers on the enemy lines. And as he goes there, he hears this Philistine named Goliath. And he challenges God's people and says, anyone who defeats me, all of my men will be your servants. <coughs> and a Goliath, of course, was a, a giant of the man, probably made Saul even look small. <coughs> Excuse me. And yet, the, all of the nation of Israel was terrified of Goliath. And yet, David, this little shepherd boy, he says, who is this man who defies the armies of the living God? Who is this man who speaks these things about the character of God? 
Saul is terrified. He doesn't want to have anything to do with this fight. And yet David says, I can take him. I can take him with God's help. <coughs> so he goes up to Goliath and Goliath mocks him. Goliath says, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And know what David says in chapter 14 or 17 of 1 Samuel. David says this, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. The all, that all of the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hands. Notice what David says here. David says, God doesn't save with the sword and with the shield. In other words, it's not about my strength. It's not about how big and strong I am. Even though I'm small and weak, God can help me defeat this giant. See, the problem was the Israelites thought that the problem was with their God. The problem was with their force. If they had a king, then they wouldn't lose these battles. But the problem wasn't with God. The problem was with their own sin. The problem was the fact that they were turning to other idols and other kings rather than relying on the true God. And so giving them a king like the other nations, a king who would fight for them, was not going to bring them any more victories. But giving them a king who was going to show them what it looked like to trust in God, that was going to give them the victory. And though David was not perfect, David was that man after God's own heart. The man who trusted God despite the opposition. And David, we know, points us to a true and greater king named King Jesus. And Jesus, we're told, just like David, was not someone that we'd expect to be a king. He was born in a manger. He was born to lower class people. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. When you think about Jesus as king, it's remarkable when you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how many times Jesus mentions the kingdom of God. And we see that throughout the Gospels, Jesus demonstrates what life is like in the kingdom of God. We see that Jesus points people to the law, points people to the true worship of God, <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5 is described by some as a kingdom manifesto where he points the people of Israel back to the true worship of God. We see that this king is going to fight on behalf of the people, relying on God as he does that. We see in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus is going to be in agony, in anguish, and he's going to cry out to the Father and says, if, this, if it's possible, take this cup from me. We're going to see that he calls upon his disciples to stand with him, to pray, to not lose heart. But they fall asleep, and they all are scattered because this battle is a battle that he has to face alone. And so he takes the steps towards the battle, the ultimate battle, the king of the universe, who fights against the kingdom of darkness, and he must do this himself. It says even then that the Heavenly Father turned his back on him. It appears that the battle is too much for him as he is bruised, mutilated, 
crucified on a cross, thrown in a tomb. It seems like darkness has won, but God brings him the victory. God raised him up from the dead. And since that day, victory has been proclaimed. In the ancient world, when a, a king or an emperor would win a victory, there would be a herald that would go around the countryside and declare the euangelion, or the good news, the good news of victory. And as believers, we go around in our places of influence in the relationships that we have, and we proclaim the good news that there is a victory by Jesus Christ. That Jesus loved us so much that he came to the earth, he lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, and uh, invites us into a relationship with himself. And that relationship with him changes everything. And we proclaim that victory and we live in that victory. We live in the reality that God loves us so much that he's willing to die for us. That he loved us so much that he was willing to give. And as believers, we also look forward to the king who is coming again. As the book of Revelation describes that Jesus is one day coming again. Revelation 19 says this, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. <coughs> And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he is a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the king that this passage is supposed to make us long for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The one who is at the same time all-powerful, within whom all resides all strength, but also whom is all-loving, who loves us enough to die for us. That's the kind of king that we need. And sometimes God gives us what we want to show us what we need. He gives us what we want to show us what we need. Sometimes he gives us things that we want so badly. You know, there's things in our life, maybe we... You know, even if we're Christians, we've been praying for these things and praying for these things, and we want them so badly, and we feel like if these things are fixed in our life, or if we get these things, then everything will be okay, and we'll feel this sense of hope and security. And sometimes God is like, okay, you can have them. Sometimes it might be money. Sometimes it might be possession. Could be relationship. Could be a child. It could be a sense of importance could be a new job or a new position and we want these things so badly we keep asking God and God is like okay if you really want it you can have it and then we get those things and even if they're really good things we realize they're not enough we still need more we still need a greater king and so when he gives us these things sometimes it points us to that true and greater king the king who goes before us, before us and fights our battles. There's an old legend about a town in Germany, and each year the town had uh, bad crops for several years. And the townspeople grew anxious and 
upset and started to complain and they called out to God and said, will you just let us call the shots for just one year? For one year, will you just let us plan out the harvest? And then God said, all right, for one year. And so whenever they asked for rain, God would send rain. Whenever they asked for sun, God would send sun. The corn never grew higher. The wheat was never uh, bigger or thicker. But when the harvest came, they went out to harvest and there was no corn. There were no wheat stalks. And the townspeople came to God and they said, well, you failed us. We asked you for sun. We asked you for rain. You sent them, but there's no crop. And God said, no, but you never asked for the harsh north winds. Without the harsh north winds, there's no pollination. Without no pollination, there's no crop. They thought they knew what they wanted. But when they were given what they wanted, it showed them what they needed. And the same thing is true for us as believers. Sometimes God will give us what we want to show us what we need. And what we ultimately need is himself. The king who went before us. The king who gave everything for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're a king that we can trust in, a king that we can rely on. We thank you that you went to the cross to fight the ultimate battle with sin and death, and because of that, we can have a relationship with you. Lord, I pray that our relationship with you would be our ultimate source of security, that we would find rest in you, not in other things. And Lord, even when you give us these things of this world, we know that you sometimes give us those things to point us to you so that we would have a longing for you and a relationship with you. Lord, I pray that we would live our lives following after you with all of our hearts. That we would give you all the praise. That we'd give you all of the glory. And that we would trust in you as we face our battles, knowing that it's you who brings the victory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.